Good morning. I'm Richard Broadhead. I'm the president of Duke, and it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome you to the inaugural events of the launching of the Nicholas Institute of Environmental Policy Solutions. In the role of university president, one is always aware of the special nature of universities. They're places for the gathering of communities of very intelligent people. They're places where that intelligence naturally engages in inquiry, asking questions, uh, pushing those questions through to new discoveries. And universities are also places of intellectual training. They're places where you take promising people early in life and give them the training that enables them to be creative and thoughtful in later life. And all these things being true, it follows that it's a special power and also a special responsibility of universities to use all that gathered intelligence in consequential ways, to bring that, intelli that intelligence to bear on great and important problems and human needs. What might some of these be? We would think of the human liability to illness, uh, uh, all our physical frail uh, frailties, uh, the pursuit of cures, the pursuit of uh, the changed conditions that would make the uh, global distribution of those, of those cures more equitably available. A great issue would be uh, how we can work to bring a higher level of peace and prosperity to the many parts of the world that enjoy nothing like uh, what we take for granted but certainly on a very, very short list of things one would call consequential at that level would be the whole question of the, uh, uh, what we have now come to call the environment. You know the main thing about the environment is uh, uh, you differ from other people in the world because you're always thinking about the environment. You're the wrong audience for this uh, event in some ways. Uh, the point for the rest of us is, you know, environment is called in German Umwelt, the, just the, the stuff around you, the world around you. Uh, it's what you don't see. It's what you live in without being aware of most of the time until somehow nature rears up and the environment slaps you in the face and makes you aware of its extraordinary power uh, and uh, domination of your life. Of course, we all think of Hurricane Katrina as the most recent instance. And when something like that event happens, uh, what we now know is it's not just nature we're experiencing in those moments. Humans have interacted and remade nature so profoundly that when nature acts on us, it's our own acts on nature revisiting themselves on us. We're experiencing the consequences of our own unconscious choices uh, when we experience uh, uh, the environment around us. As for instance, if you reshape the coastline, it turns out that has consequences uh, in your ability or inability to deal with uh, tidal surges. Uh, if you produce lots of toxins as byproducts of commercial uh, processes, when there's a flood, you not only have the inevitable natural disaster, you have the possibly inevitable human disaster uh, of pumping things out of one place to make it better, only to create a new kind of problem somewhere else that you weren't thinking about. Uh, we've all heard about the growing number of strong hurricanes, and we all understand that has something to do with the temperature of the ocean, uh, and it is at least a, a plausible question as to whether the rise of that temperature ha is, is uh, the consequence of human actions, and so on and so forth. 
When I mentioned these things, it's what I began by talking about universities and the gathering of intelligence and the consequentiality of the way that intelligence can be used. Uh, you know what follows from this, namely, intelligence can be, can be deployed on these kinds of problems and uh, deployed in such a way as to produce not just understanding, but understanding of the meaning of the choices that are available to us, what their consequences might be over time and why some might be better than others. But we're also gathered here because we understand that, uh, that the world in which that intelligence would operate is very imperfectly constructed in our world. Uh, there are all kinds of breaks in the circuit of communication such that academics whose work ought to have implications uh, turn out not always to have those implications because of the extent to which academics live within sort of self communicating, but somewhat self-enclosed communities. Uh, so too, one looks at the political process and wonders, uh, why is it so devoid of or detached from the kind of intelligence that is available in our time? Well, that's because of the breaks in circuits. Uh, one looks at the world of companies and corporations. We do need them uh, for our livelihood and all uh, the products that come to us. Uh, and there are choices being made there, but not always by people who, you know, sometimes by people who want to do uh, the better weather than the Worst thing, but don't always have the internal capacity to know what that would be. So the question arises, what if in a university setting, one tried to create an interface, uh, the kind of uh, a structure that pr uh, uh, permits you to gather together the parties that too often are severed, to put them in communication with one another, uh, and to uh, create the capacity for knowledge that has to be derived in a research setting to be carried across in such a way that it informs the structure of policy choices. This is the idea that is embodied in the uh, Nicholas Institute. Um, and, all, and I only want to say one thing. We'll be thanking the, uh, the, the founders and uh, uh, many other things in the course of the day. I only want to say your presence here today as people who come from so many different phases of uh, uh, the life of this country, uh, it, it not just celebrates the Institute, but in some sense embodies its goals of, of bringing intelligence into new and more effective com combinations. And so I thank you, not just for your presence, but for helping us realize uh, the very nature of the ambition of this place. I'll stop now by saying this. Uh, my real function here is not to do, say anything at all, but rather to introduce the next speaker. Uh, you will find that he will end up by introducing the speaker following him. What was that? So I just want to say it was a very fortunate day uh, when, in our search for a director for the Nicholas Institute, uh, we came across the not entirely unknown quantity of Tim Profeta. He is a product of this university. He came here to law school, and such is the nature of this school uh, that if, what could be more natural if you're a law student than to find yourself taking classes in environmental law and then doing a second degree in uh, uh, environmental management. So he exemplifies the, the, the high level of interdisciplinarity at this school left this school to work in government. As you know, he was the chief environmental aide for Senator Lieberman and, and a major figure in forming what we know as the McCain-Lieberman bill. Uh, so he also exemplifies the crossing of the academic and the policy world. Uh, and now, at his advanced age, uh, he has come back uh, not just to manage this institution, but in effect to found it, to figure out what it is and make it, uh, make it, make it real. 
uh, we, owe, we owe the program today uh, to, his, to his labor in no small part, uh, and we owe the, uh, the effective realization of the ambitions of this institute uh, in no small part to him too. So I could go on, but maybe at this point I will just perform my function and introduce Tim Profeta. Thanks very much. It's always hard to follow Dick Broadhead at this microphone, but I will, I will do my best. Um, welcome to all today to the, the inaugural summit for the Nicholas Institute. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Perfetta, and I am the uh, first director of the Nicholas Institute. For those and friends and colleagues who have come, I thank you very much for coming and joining and helping us as we set course with this institution. We have quite a day ahead of us today, and I'll try and be brief and allow us to to get to the meat of the, uh, meat of the day. But I would like to take a moment to introduce you, from my perspective, to what we're trying to achieve with the Nicholas Institute. The, the Institute, which is founded with the generosity of Pete and Ginny Nicholas, who are with, here with us today, is intended to bring the intellectual heft of this university to the vexing environmental challenges of today. As many of us in this room know, as veterans of the wars, environmental policy is somewhat paralyzed in this country today, frozen between warring sides that often obscure the facts, confuse the facts, and leave the American people not knowing quite where to go for the facts. The Nicholas Institute is intended to enter that debate and seek to fill the void that's created there, to create an institution that is aggressively engaged in the development of policy in this country, an institution that carries the credibility of the name of Duke University, but an institution that lacks any self-fulfilling political agenda of its own. In doing this, in taking on this mission, Duke is ideally suited for that role. As a graduate of it, I know its strengths and I know how much has been built here. It sits only four hours from our nation's capital and has built one of the nation's leading environmental graduate schools, if not the leading school, and scientific research program. It also has substantial expertise across the campus in the medical school, the policy school, the law school, the engineering school, and the list goes on. The Institute is planning to reach across this campus and seek out the faculty from all these institutions to ensure that we have the most comprehensive approach to environmental policy question as we take it on. And as a graduate of this institution, I also have to say that Duke possesses something very distinctive that isn't seen on the website. There is a genuine desire on this campus amongst the faculty to collaborate across the disciplines, across the schools, and bring the best minds to bear on the question. That is rare in academia, as I've found, and it's particularly rare in such a renowned institution. So I believe this institute is new today but it's actually institutionalization of something that has already grown up on this campus, a culture that will benefit us in our efforts. I also want to take a moment to provide you with some sort of a roadmap for what I see in the agenda today and what I hope to, uh, hope to get out of it. Those of us who have been involved in the effort of creating this institute all have views on how the institute may fit this niche, may fill this void. But we also admit that we don't know it all. So this gathering today, for which we're extremely grateful for your attendance, 
will help us guide the creation of the Institute's mission and the work. And today's agenda should provide us with a wide-ranging discussion that we need to have that evaluative process. We'll hear from the experience of two men who've been at the forefront of the environment since it bloomed as an independent issue worthy of public attention. After this, we'll get a snapshot from Peter Hart and Bill Markenter of today's public perception environment, the baseline on which we are working in our po American po uh, politics, and look for why voters support the environment and to what degree. We'll follow that with a discussion with those in the, in the field of how those, that data, that research should be implemented. And this, after, this afternoon, we're going to change gears a little bit, and history will take the lead again with a global and historical perspective of civilizations and how they rise and fall on how they steward their resources. We'll hear this history, and we'll contemplate how we can learn from the successes and failures of the past. After that, we will hear about our civilization and our relationship with the natural world. We'll hear from active participants, from academia, from government, from business, from nonprofit sector, and have them discuss the challenges that we face in energy, climate, habitat, oceans, the issues of our times. We also will hear at the end a very interesting conversation about the role corporations are playing in working towards solutions to many of our environmental problems and how that, this role could expand or change or become a driver of, of progress itself. As I sit in the audience today and view these conversations, I'll be trying to have a sharp eye to culling new ideas and connections that occur during these conversations to help us create and build the Nicholas Institute and meet the vision that's been put forth. I particularly be listening in each of these presentations to gain a better understanding of what is the problem we're facing? What are the barriers and obstacles that have prevented us from making greater progress on it? And what are the opportunities for finding workable solutions that this institute can play a role in, in finding? All of this, all of this is quite an ambitious mission, but it's a greatly needed mission. So I'm glad to say that when Dick and the leadership of Duke came to me to ask me to take on this task. They did not send me out alone. Instead, they recruited a man I regard as one of the true statesmen of the environment, Bill O'Reilly, to serve as my chairman of the board and my advisor, and advisor to the Institute. And then, since I've come aboard here, I, I have to say I could not have had a better collaborator and co-conspirator than Bill. His council experience are, have been invaluable, and I have been amazed by his boundless energy on this task, and it's helped immensely as we, we wrestle with this ambitious task before me and us. So I would like uh, to ask Bill now to give a statement on his view of the Institute and where we are. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. As Senator Lieberman commented, yesterday at the press conference we had in Washington. Uh, we have someone here of extraordinary ability, quality, and for his relative young life, very significant experience. The uh, most exciting, I think, legislation pending in the Congress at this time is the McCain-Lieberman Act, and uh, Tim played a critical role in 
conceiving and writing that statute, and uh, we will one day celebrate with him its enactment. We are very fortunate to have him as the director of this institute, and I think his star quality will, will inspire many of the people who look to this university and this institute for important advances in environment in the years to come. I um, am reminded as I look around the room at so many friends and so many distinguished figures in the field of environmental action particularly who've come down to this meeting of a time when I hosted a environmental jamboree of activists in Estes Park, Colorado. And I was on an airplane that was full of virtually all the environmentalists who mattered from Washington at that time. And I remember saying in my introductory remarks that anything had happened to that airplane, the stock market probably would have risen 100 points. <laughs> but, but that was a different era. That was before we had made so much of the progress that I think as a country we have made. And, and we certainly not completed the journey. But in integrating our environmental aspirations, with our economic goals. That is one of the unfinished businesses that we have here, and one to which I think we will give a priority. But fu fundamentally, this is just a marvelous convergence of people, resources, and a very timely and I think even urgent opportunity. There are so many things. I have always been a glass half full conservationist, but there are so many issues confronting the planet today in our field, failure to address them today we will deeply regret tomorrow. This is about catching up in many ways and then getting ahead of many of these issues. I would like to just reflect briefly. I think, I think Tim has given a vision for this institute. I'd like to reflect briefly from my own experience on some of the critical characteristics of effective policy advocacy. And I think there are about five or six. And the first is quality information. Information drives policy. It establishes credibility and used well, it confers initiative. We have extraordinary resources in this university. Many universities have great resources, many of the great research universities in the country, but have not been able to or elected to engage in the policy process. And there are significant uh, explanations, good reasons for that, many of them. I went to Stanford when I left government, and I remember the best and most unifying way that the extraordinary competences of that great university were brought together was at Friday afternoon at the Institute for International Policy Institute for International uh, Studies, when um, a presentation was given by one or another of the researchers from different departments. But as important as some of the figures were, Don Kennedy and Paul Ehrlich and the others, there were margaritas following the uh, conversations. Margaritas on a Friday afternoon actually worked very well to glue that, uh, that institution together. And now they're taking the step of establishing an institute for the environment at Stanford. Um, that, um, so information, I think, needs also, and the second requirement, I would say, is a serious proposition with an action component, a strategy, a willingness to engage. 
And I think this is where universities often draw back. One of the great characteristics of this university, as Tim mentioned, is a friendliness to collaboration across the disciplines. It doesn't exist at many universities. That will be important to the success of this institute, and without it, the institute won't succeed in drawing forth all of the marvelous competences, abilities, qualities of the people here. Third, engage stakeholders. You know, many times we've tried to pass legislation over the protest of those most intimately affected by the regulations. And occasionally it has been possible to do that in stage one. Invariably, however, one learns in trying to make a success of a statute or a regulation that is strongly resisted by the stakeholders, by the key regulated entities, you have to have them in stage two, when finally they agree that probably this piece of policy is here to stay, now it's time for everybody to get together and make it work and effective. Um, for a certain tolerance for messiness, and opportunism helps in the policy process, I'm reminded of a time that was thought that I was being a little too hard in regulating wetlands in Louisiana. And a distinguished, uh, a distinguished senator uh, came to me and he said, um, Administrator, I have a heart. The half of my state that's not underwater is under indictment. <laughs> <laughs> you can't imagine who that was, Gus. <laughs> this same senator, when he had been a congressman in the early 1980s, was accused of having sold out, having sold his vote to uh, the Reagan administration on a budget agreement in return for a guarantee of continuation of uh, sugar subsidies. And um, I'm going to have to give his name away. He said, uh, John Bro, when he was accused of this on national television, bought? Never. Rented, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the nature of the policy process. Uh, it's a little bit messy. Five, I would say, sustained communications. I think the Hewlett Foundation and the, and the support that it has given to the National Commission on Energy Policy over the last year, the commission reported last December, it still has a full-time staff, full-time employed. It is testifying before the Congress, providing information on a regular basis to the press, having meetings on details of implementation of some of its proposals, it is a very model of how you do public policy if you're serious. You don't leave it with the report, with the document. You give at least as sustained and substantial a commitment to follow through and implementation. And six, money. We don't talk about it much, but we just spend it. Well, um, looking at Duke with some of these reflections in mind. We obviously have a world-class research university. We have science and business and law and forestry and political science and biology. And, uh, and this tradition that I mentioned that is so vital and, and so, uh, frankly, for someone who has had some experience with the university, it's unusual, uh, the sense that it is a positive thing. And you get points within your discipline for working with those in neighboring disciplines. There are very few public policies affecting the environment that will not involve more than one discipline. And so that is truly vital, and that's why I emphasize it. A president in full support. I, um, I can only say I served uh, for about half the time that Dick Broadhead was dean of Yale College. I served as a member of the Yale Corporation for six years of his 12 or so years there. And um, 
this university is so fortunate to have him, and I think uh, he is the envy of uh, virtually all the other universities for the kind of uh, energy, charisma, thoughtfulness, uh, and engaging, uh, generous personality that he has. Uh, he is the critical reason, really, that I'm here. And um, I think that uh, he's going to make history, and Duke is going to make history under his leadership. A generous and imaginative donor. I um, first encountered Pete Nicholas. I must say, I, I remember thinking it's not difficult to see how he has achieved the things that he has achieved. Uh, he is an irresistible force. And he has, he has expressed his enthusiasm and his energy and his support for this institute with a sense of reserve and respect for the university, for the role that he has, and it's not just its opportunity, but also its limitations, I think, in, in encouraging us to think big, to try to affect the issues. As he said yesterday at the press conference, he is less concerned with how an issue comes out than with that it be engaged and people think seriously about it, people be confronted with it and make choices and decisions, which is exactly, I think, the right philosophy to go into this with. A savvy and energetic director, I've said, uh, I've said what I think of, of Tim and his knowledge of the Washington scene, his uh, determination to have a Washington office to advance policies on the national level there, I think is going to be vital to the success of the Institute. Uh, he's exactly what we need, and I think he's going to make history too. And finally, I would say fundamental to any important environmental effort at this time is to have an international perspective. I uh, gave a speech in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. The Germans are incredulous that the United States seems so um, dilatory in addressing and even recognizing the significance of the climate issue as a matter of national policy. And I was reminded that that I was once sent to Germany to meet with Chancellor Kohl at President Bush's direction when Chancellor Kohl asked how to follow up on the G7 summit in Paris in 1989. And um, Chancellor Kohl was not known for his eloquence, but he said something at the conclusion of our one-on-one -on -one meeting that I will never forget. It was a long meeting. And he, he looked at me and he said, the fate of so much of what this world needs and wants will depend to an extraordinary degree on two countries, on yours and on mine. And looking at where Germany has gone with its public policies on the environment, I think Germany has, has to a large degree, carried out a lot of its responsibilities and given us confidence that it will do so in the future. And we have not. I would say now, looking at the future, probably more than, more than <coughs> any other two countries, it's the U.S. and China, which will determine the fate of much of what we care about. When you look at the practice of China of bringing on a thousand megawatts of new coal-fired power every week, coal-fired power plants that will last 50 years or more, you uh, have to realize the extreme urgency of engaging with other countries, and particularly with China, in finding clean ways to achieve their 13 or 14 percent annual electricity increase. And that's just one of the issues in which we in China, I think, have common interest. 
for reasons of climate protection. And the second country that I hope that we'll give us particular emphasis to is Mexico. Perhaps now as a Californian, I'm more sensitive than some to the degree to which we are increasingly sharing a culture, an economy, a society with Mexico. But I think it really behooves the United States to pay much more attention to integration of um, the Mexican economy with our own, to um, helping them address some of the severe problems they have, particularly as I'm in the water business in the, in the water area where they treat something like 4% of their waste, an arid country that can't afford to do that. Um, the prognosis politically in the for the future of Mexico is not promising at this time. And um, I know that there are, uh, there are people here in this university who have distinguished themselves in working on issues of the environment and others in Mexico. And I very much hope that the Institute will have an orientation toward Mexico, a contribution to Mexico as well. And I think of so many of the researchers that uh, in my World Wildlife Fund days I have worked with here, John Turborg served on the board, uh, very distinguished work in the Amazon. Uh, Stuart Pym also, um, very active with respect to the uh, forests of South America. Bob Healy, my old colleague at the Conservation Foundation. Uh, you, really, you really have stars in this university. And uh, I have been privileged to know just a few of them and look forward to meeting many more. To the extent that um, the board, the advisory board, can be helpful to Tim and the Institute, we will emphasize some of the things I think that I have, I have just, um, just laid out. And um, I'm sure he'll think of other things for us to do as well. So for me, it is an honor. It is a privilege. And I think it's one of the most exciting initiatives that I can imagine. And um, it's really great to be a part of it. I would now like to, uh, to introduce Russell Train. I had the great good fortune uh, coming out of the Army some years ago to go to work for Russell Train. And um, I think my first encounter with him was uh, I saw some of his charm as he resisted uh, one of President Nixon's directives that uh, everybody at his level have a telephone in their car. And I remember he was saying, well, why would I want to do that? <laughs> and I thought, how quaint. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> There's an individualist. He said, I'll never have any peace of mind. I had the great good fortune to work for him for a couple of years at the White House Council on Environmental Equality and to watch and admire so many of the things he did supremely well. I was a master of legislative testimony and I tried to learn both how to answer questions that I wanted to answer and how Russ could take a question he didn't want to answer and be so charming and desultory that the senator who'd asked it forgot what he'd asked. <laughs> no one ever had a skill, I think, quite developed to that degree. He brought broad experience to that job. I remember one of my staff, one of his staff, uh, Boyd Gibbons, once came out of a meeting sweating, saying, I have just spent a half hour trying to explain how the tax deductions will work that we propose for those who de develop wetlands, that is, the tax deductions we are going to deny to developers of wetlands. I've tried to explain the tax code to Russ Train, having forgotten for the moment that he's a former judge at the United States Tax Court. Uh, <laughs> he consistently saw the critical resources and in resource and environmental issues in the large, in global terms, and 
at a time when it was not popular or even expected, I think, of the council and the White House uh, attention to the environment, he focused on international connections and pioneered in relationships, very frustrating ones for a long time, but finally served us very usefully with, particularly with the Soviet Union. He fully understood the vital role of communications in which I was sometimes involved. He drove important and innovative ideas, and I can think of so many, I'll just cite three, that basically are his achievements, his products. Training of Africans in wildlife management, he established the um, foundation for that well before most of the African countries had achieved independence and promoted a professionalism and a continuity in management of wildlife and a buy-in on the part of those new countries that, uh, to which we owe a lot even today. And the Education for Nature program at World Wildlife Fund continues that tradition for which he's raised most of the money. World Heritage Sites was Russ's idea, and he's just come from Paris where, uh, where that was under discussion. He recognized the importance of land use, and particularly of coastal zone management, uh, at an era when the coasts were beginning to be stressed, not nearly to the degree they are today, but it was legislation that came out of the Interior Department when he was undersecretary, for which he was responsible, that got us started on the road toward, if not national land use policy, at least coastal zone management policy. Well, there's been a continuous thread of important contributions to conservation and the environment through his private and public life, and I have no hesitation in saying this is the leading American conservationist of his generation. The preeminent statesman in our field, uh, Russ Train has preceded me in five positions and it said that uh, no one is a hero to his successor. Well, I think Russ is a hero to all of us who have worked in this field during the train years, and it is a great privilege for me to introduce him to you now. Rest train. Thank you.